Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It's hard to believe we're well into our fourth season. I'm so grateful you've taken the time to listen to these stories. I will continue to give you an inside look at the cases I've covered, and my goal is always to give a voice to the voiceless and show the far-reaching impact of crime. As time passes, the trauma each of the victims and their families face doesn't fade or go away. With each anniversary, there are further struggles. For the families of homicide victims, every missed birthday or missed milestone is a reminder of stolen opportunities. Before I go too much further, I want to take a moment and remember one of those victims and her family, the little girl whose story I shared in the very first episode. Mika Jordan, the broken princess, was only six years old when she was tortured and murdered by her own father and stepmother. Last December, her family should have celebrated her sweet 16. This year, there was another tragic milestone in her case. November 14, 2021, marked a decade since Mika was killed. Her loved ones continue to do all they can to keep her memory alive. In their honor, I would love to have you join me for a small moment to remember Mika. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, a special year-end episode to share updates, and new developments in some of the stories I've covered. This is the 2021 edition of The Story is Never Finished. One of the cases I receive the most messages about is the story of Lucas Strasser Heard. 18-year-old Lucas stood up for what was right one fateful night at a Calgary nightclub. And for that, he was violently swarmed, stomped, beaten, and stabbed to death. His family was dealt a series of devastating blows in their quest for justice. Four men were convicted. Nathan Gervais was found guilty of first-degree murder. Franz Cabrera and Asmar Schlaw were convicted of second-degree murder. And Josh Pook was found guilty of manslaughter. Cabrera and Schlaw took their appeals all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the convictions were upheld. 
Lucas's family thought the court process was finally over. Since then, Franz Cabrera successfully appealed his sentence. The Alberta Court of Appeal reduced his parole ineligibility from 15 years to 12 years. This year, Lucas's family was also notified that Asmarsh Law is once again trying to fight his conviction. This is something the family had no idea was possible. And to be honest, neither did I. Schlaw's defense obtained a court order from the Court of Queen's Bench for the release of Schlaw's shoes for further testing. During the trial, court heard Schlaw was a skilled soccer player. The shoes he wore on the night of Lucas's attack were bloodstained. Forensic testing revealed the blood on Schlaw's right shoe was Lucas's. Lucas's DNA was also found on the left shoe. Depending on the results of the new tests, Schlaw's legal team plans to apply for a ministerial review of the conviction. If they do, and the federal justice minister concludes that a miscarriage of justice likely occurred, the minister may grant a convicted person a remedy and return the case to the courts by either referring the case to a court of appeal to be heard as a new appeal or directing that a new trial be held. The minister may also refer a question to the court of appeal in the appropriate province. Lucas's family was informed of these latest developments in March of 2021, but by December 2021 had still not received any further updates. When there is an update, I'll be sure to bring that to you. I also want to share my deepest condolences with Lucas's family on the death of his mother. I spoke to Audrey Strasser many times in covering this case. Her heart was shattered when her son was killed. She tragically passed away at her home in Bolivia in March of 2021. Again, my deepest sympathies to her family. In the spring of 2021, I shared a shocking case that included more than three decades of violated trust at the hands of a Calgary doctor. Disgraced neurologist Keith Hoyt admitted to sexually assaulting 28 female patients over 30 years. He was sentenced to three years in prison. Since the release of that episode, there have been a number of developments in the case. Just eight months into his sentence, Hoyt applied for parole. I attended that hearing in May of 2021. He was on a video link from Bowdoin Institution and had his defense lawyer attend as his assistant. Five of the women he assaulted, along with one of their husbands, read victim impact statements. Each implored the board to deny Hoyt's release. The women spoke of the fear and trauma they live with and said they're skeptical of his remorse. Hoyt told the board he felt deeply remorseful and horrible after hearing those statements. He said, deep inside, I have a grave sense of remorse and that he didn't realize his actions were wrong at the time the offenses happened. 
Hoyt told the board, quote, It was part of the exam, pushing the breast aside while listening to the heart, end of quote. He said it was only after he was charged he realized his actions were wrong. You'll recall an expert, Dr. Neil Hagen, was set to offer his opinion in court if this case had gone to trial. I interviewed him for the episode. The question that the uh, Crown Prosecutor posed me to me was, is there a plausible explanation for patients who have been examined in the way that they describe? And uh, there is no doubt, there is no way that this could be uh, appropriate. Back in the hearing, the parole board inquired if there were more victims beyond the original court case. Every victim who you offended against has come forward, the board asked. As far as I know, every victim has come forward, Hoyt replied. The Parole Board of Canada said it has serious concerns about the lack of insight Hoyt has shown in his case. His request for both day and full parole was denied. And as of today, he remains in prison. Hoyt's statutory release date is in September of 2022. That marks two-thirds of his sentence and his release is mandated by law. His warrant expiry, which is the end of the sentence and dealings with the Parole Board and the Correctional Service of Canada, is about a year later, in 2023. I should add, it stood out to me when he said in the hearing that there weren't any more victims because at that point, I had confirmed that several more women had gone to police following the conclusion of the previous court case. This summer, he was once again charged. Hoyt is facing a string of new offenses for the alleged abuse of nearly 30 more former patients that happened between 1984 and 2013. A trial date has not yet been set. There have also been some applications for restitution in this case. Earlier this year, three of the victims from the first court case asked for compensation for therapy and lost wages. One of the women asked for $2,660 for counseling fees. Another asked for $11,500 for counseling costs. A third woman asked for $74,000 in lost wages after she took a leave of absence from her work for a year. That leave began just days after she provided a statement about the abuse to police. Each victim provided documentation for the amounts they were seeking. In the end, while the justice acknowledged the psychological impact these crimes had on the victims, he denied the request for restitution and suggested this could be better dealt with in civil court so further evidence could be called to make a fair assessment of the financial claims. There is a civil action that's been filed. 17 of the original 28 victims are suing Hoyt. Each is seeking $160,000 in damages. Both the new criminal charges and the civil case are still before the courts. I will keep you updated. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As we close out another year and look forward to 2022, I want to talk about an important issue. In the past, I've shared stories that detail the abuse suffered in residential schools and the 60s scoop. That includes the story of Tia Ledesma, the girl who became a warrior, and the paths that choose us, the story of Gabriel O'Keenan. Since then, so much more information has come to light. In May of this year, it was revealed that ground-penetrating radar detected what are believed to be the remains of 215 Indigenous children at a former residential school in Kamloops, BC. That number is now in the thousands, as burial sites continue to be discovered across Canada and the U.S. I turned to Doreen Spence, an internationally respected traditional Cree elder and a strong advocate for human rights. She was a part of the working group that drafted the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. My Christian name is Doreen Spence. My sacred name is Baskustawan Kihil Iskuil Onikaneo, Bald Eagle Woman Who Leads. I am from the Cree Nation. My, uh, I come from Satellite Reservation here in Alberta. So I am Indigenous to Alberta, and we are from the Cree tribes. So I come from the Cree Nation. She asked me to call her Grandmother Doreen. She was one of the first Indigenous women to graduate as a licensed practical nurse, leading to her nursing career that spanned over 40 years. She later received an honorary Bachelor of Nursing from Mount Royal University. She's volunteered with countless initiatives with police forces, school systems, and hospitals to preserve traditions. She facilitates connection circles with the University of Calgary and the Cumming School of Medicine and leads sharing circles at Mount Royal University's nursing program. Grandmother Doreen was also recently appointed to the Order of Canada. My goal in speaking with her was to learn more about these important Indigenous issues so I can better share these stories. When I was born, you got to remember that's when the kids were being scooped and I wasn't allowed to play in the barn because apparently the Indian agent would come in and, and uh, with a pitchfork and check the hay stacks to see if kids were hiding. And so my, when I was born, my grandparents took me and told my mother that they were going to raise me. So um, they were very traditional and they took me off a reserve when I was probably about six, five or six. And we lived a nomadic life away from everybody for quite some time. 
until I was school age. And then they decided to put me with some of my aunties or somebody that I could get back and forth to school. Grandmother Doreen is 84 years old, but recalls her childhood clearly. And in school, in the all-white school, I was an only native. And I, I was not allowed to use the swings because I was a filthy native. You know, and the girls wouldn't even talk to me. So I made friends with the boys and got on the all-boys team. And my teacher, I remember one day she told me, you can't play baseball with the boys. And I said, why? And she said, because you're a girl. So I, that really troubled me. So at recess time, uh, one day I went back into the schoolhouse and I stood to her at the door and I called her name and Miss so-and-so and she looked around and Doreen, you're not supposed to be in here. And I said, I know, but I just have to ask you one question. And she said, what is it? And I said, if somebody told you that you couldn't become a teacher because you're a girl, what would you do? And I looked at her and I could tell that she couldn't answer me. So I walked back out. So eventually she let me play baseball with the boys. It was originally estimated more than 4,000 Indigenous children died while being forced to attend the church-run, government-funded institutions, where thousands more suffered physical and sexual abuse, neglect, and malnutrition. But the remains that have been discovered over the past few months, and many more still to be discovered, are undocumented deaths, which means they weren't accounted for in the government's official numbers. Over a century, an estimated 150,000 Indigenous children were forced to attend residential schools. My mom went to residential schools, and so that's why they were so... And my granny went to residential school. So I grew up with that whole era of residential schools. They wouldn't talk about it. My mom passed away when she was 90-something. And um, one day, uh, one of the aunties came over and she was visiting us in Edmonton. And she said, did your mother ever tell you that uh, she was taken and her hands were tied together like this and her feet and they put water underneath, they put a, a basin and then they told her to stand in there and they pulled the, uh, the light on, the light switch on and electrocuted her for speaking her language. So there was horrible stuff went on in, in residential schools, and that's why they wouldn't share those stories with us. My granny was the same. Mom would never talk about residential school. When you'd ask her, Mom, what about such and such? When you were my age, what did you do in school? You know, And then she'd say, I don't want to talk about it. And so then it wasn't until all of this started to come out that you begin to learn these stories in the history of residential schools. And then when we're adults, then that's when they share with you because they didn't want to harm you. They wanted to um, 
try to protect you as much as they could. You know, the parents at that time, they're trying to preserve the culture. That was their utmost. And that is oral history, the, the creation stories, the ceremonies, the songs. Remember, we were being, everything was banned at that time. You, I remember as a child, I couldn't even go into a store to try. I was 14 or 15 when my grandparents, about 14 when my grandparents bought me a pair of shoes, my first pair of running shoes, but I couldn't go into the store and try them on. That was not allowed. We weren't allowed to go in a store as kids. When we'd go to the town, we'd have to hang around uh, the, the horse stables where we were. So, yeah, it was bad. We had to sign in and sign out the rest when we'd leave and when we'd come back and so forth. So it was highly sophisticated uh, way of controlling people. Grandmother Doreen told me she was forced to go to an Indian day school, which were originally left out of government residential school settlements and haven't received a lot of attention until fairly recently. I was taken back to the reservation because my grandparents got a letter from the government stating that uh, I had high marks and I was needed to go back to the rest to go help the, the teacher teach. We had no say if they said, like to my grandparents, you have to take her back to the reservation. They got a letter from the government officials saying they were compelled to. And those days they would jail them if they didn't uh, allow them. So that was the option. I received racism from her on a daily basis. I would get up at five in the morning, most of the time because I was so bloody cold. I'd get up and I'd go over and, and open the door of the schoolhouse. And then I'd put a fire on in the big stove. And then I'd make porridge in a big pot for the students. And then I'd make powdered milk. So when my students arrived, they'd have some hot nourishment. And then I was told I had to give them cod liver oil on top of that. And I was just a teenage kid because I just graduated my grade nine. They hadn't even sent me my marks, but my grandparents got the letter giving them that information that I had graduated grade nine and they were compelled to take me back to the reservation and leave me there to teach school. They couldn't come and visit. They could, I didn't get money. I didn't get paid. So it was three years of child labor there. I have a lawsuit against uh, the government for that right now, but it takes a lifetime to get these things done. So I'm just waiting to see if I'll ever get my settlement. Grandmother Doreen has fought racism her entire life. I lived in a, grew up in a world of exclusion that I wasn't ever good enough. And, and even, you know, that she, even with my children, they, I had to fight for them to take the sciences in school because they were indigenous. I said, why aren't they taking sciences? And they said, because they won't do well. And I said, what do you mean they won't do well? 
So I, I fought tooth and nail, not only for myself, but for my, my three children. We're struggling and fighting to have that curriculum where this history should be in the books, like be taught in every school. And yes, they're now mentioning residential schools, but what hurts me is they haven't even mentioned Indian day schools, is which I have gone through. You know, it's almost as if we're not even a part of the history, and yet we're a big part of the Canadian history. I live every day to the fullest as if it were my last day upon the planet. And to come from a place of like total forgiveness, I don't even think of the past. There's so much work to do that I ha I remain focused on the positivity and my role in the cycle of life and what I need to do to make this world a better planet for all nations. September 30th, 2021, marked the first national day for truth and reconciliation. The day honors the lost children and survivors of residential schools their families, and communities. I want to note the Crime Beat episodes I've done so far that share stories from the 60s scoop and the residential schools were put together in 2020. At that time, we took extreme care in how we worded these important details. However, as new information comes to light about further abuse and thousands of deaths, I'm committed to updating how we share these important Indigenous stories, so I do it accurately and respectfully. I don't back away from an opportunity of sharing a little bit about the story if it's going to help somebody else, you know, because, I mean, I'm 84 now, so I just kind of do the very best I can every day to make that to create that awareness or, or that dialogue between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. You have to keep the conversation going and somebody like yourself is like a little diamond in the rough, just bringing all that light to the forefront, all of that to, to so people, you can enlighten people. I wanna add the Indian Residential Schools Crisis Line is one 866 925-4419. It's available 24 hours a day for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience. Grandmother Doreen told me she's not aware of any similar support line for those who attended Indian day schools. I want to take a moment to thank Grandmother Doreen so much for her willingness to speak with me, for taking the time to give me a glimpse into her story, and to help further this conversation. This is one of many discussions I hope to have with her, and it's an honor to learn from her. Thank you so much for listening to Crime Beat. I wish you all the very best. I'll be back in early 2022 with more important stories, and I hope you'll join me then. 
Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and you can join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.